We are, uh, we're in week four now of a series called Cross-Shaped Life. The idea behind this series is something's supposed to be happening with us between now and heaven. It's not just a waiting game when you come to faith in Jesus, where you just, well, one day it'll be a great in heaven. I'll, my name will be on the list, and, and I'll, I'll get into heaven, and that's what all this is about. No, there's something that's supposed to be happening now, and it's not merely behavior modification. And Christians have a way of just tinkering around the edges and trying to change the way we act when the Holy Spirit really has a a desire to change the way we are. And so the the Holy Spirit, once you come to faith in Jesus, you surrender yourself, your your whole being to the Holy Spirit for him to rework you. And, And the Holy Spirit's mission is not just to modify your behavior, it's to transform your character. And behavior modification is just about the way you act. But character transformation is about the way you are. And so we're not talking about just becoming good little boys and girls, cookie-cutter Christians who don't drink too much and don't cuss. And, you know, and and when you go to the junior high dance, you leave room for the spirit between you and your girl, you know. Hands not too high, not too low, right, right in the safe zone. And, you know, you just you follow all the rules. Some of you were taught that's what Christianity is. And some of those ideas are good. We want some of those outcomes. Don't get me wrong. But we put the cart before the horse because those outcomes should be a result of an inner working of the Holy Spirit in your life once you believe in Jesus. So the Holy Spirit changes who you are and then the outcomes change. You don't just act different, but on the inside, you're still the same old decrepit soul you were before. So the Holy Spirit wants to change who you are. And that takes some time. It takes some intentionality on your part a willingness to submit to that process. And so we're talking about what that process looks like, what the outcomes hopefully are with the cross-shaped life. So far, we've talked about the cross-shaped marriage, cross-shaped masculinity. Last week was cross-shaped forgiveness. All of these are character issues. And and today we're talking about uh, cross-shaped conflict, cross-shaped conflict. Uh, This may be unexpected in the the scope of the series, but it's so important that we understand how to manage conflict well. And part of that's because conflict's inevitable. You're always going to face conflict. Either it's interpersonal conflict or just internal. You'll always have to work out issues and figure out how to address problems. And and every conflict you face is an inflection point. And, And how you deal with that conflict can either grow you in ways you never thought possible, or it can set you back. And because most of us were raised in situations in homes where it was well-intentioned, but our families, most of us did not, our families did not model good and proper and fruitful (laughs) conflict resolution. Most of us had family situations growing up where when there was conflict, it was either swept under the rug and ignored, which is awful. I mean, what happens when you sweep conflict under the rug and ignore it? Over time, what happens? You have a really lumpy rug. That's one thing that happens. But metaphorically speaking, the rug is your, is your soul. <laughs> and, and what happens is you sweep one conflict after another under the rug, and suddenly you're screaming at a Toyota Corolla on the loop. You know, it's like you're just irrational because the anger has built up. I'm talking mostly to guys right now. The anger builds up, and you, you take it out on something that has nothing to do with the issues. And that's what some of us learned. And others of us learned you know, in, in our households, maybe you learned uh, to go the other extreme where it's, it's zero to 100 miles an hour 
in a split second, there's an issue. Everybody's screaming, throwing up your hands, walking away, maybe walking out. And obviously that's not healthy either. So we're going to have to figure out what to do with conflict when it's interpersonal, in our marriages, with our parents, with our children, with our coworkers, and when it's between your own two ears. When what you think is true comes into conflict with some new ideas or some new social trend or whatever, like, what do you do with that conflict? Um, it can be an opportunity to grow or it can be an opportunity to, to, to take a step back and regress. And I want to say a special word to new believers because the story has a bunch of new believers and people that are kicking the tires on Christianity. And I don't want to bait and switch you. I, I'm afraid some of you think that coming to Jesus means less conflict. And the Bible's abundantly clear that the opposite is true. When you come to faith in Christ, you're going to have more conflict, not less. The Christian life is not pleasant. It's not easy. It's not nice or, you know, or polite. It's full of conflict, more than you had before. Because you take everything you were dealing with before and you add to it the fact that you now have a spiritual enemy who has you in his sights, who comes at you in ways that he didn't before because you weren't his enemy before. He was just fine with the way you were living before. And now you're the enemy of his and he comes at you. And that's on a spiritual level. But even on a, on a sociological level, the more you fall in love with Jesus, the more you're going to stand out in a world that's often hostile. And I hesitate to share this part. I don't want it to sound like I'm whining or like I'm saying Christians are just awfully persecuted in, in America. We're not. Our heads aren't ending up on stakes and stuff like in times and places past. But Jesus said, we're not to blend in. He said, you're going to have problems in this world because you are salt and you are light. And salt and light, the fundamental characteristics there are change. They change everything they touch. Salt seasons, light enlivens. You change every conversation, every room you walk into is changed and affected by your presence there. And that can be threatening to the world, to your friends who knew you before you came to faith. It can feel like you're abandoning them or judging them because they still want to party with you the way they used to party with you. And now you're getting invited to things less and it creates conflict. You're your family situation can be the same. So how will we deal with these conflicts when they arise? Unless we get overwhelmed by this and start to think it's too much and, and we get back into those default modes of just sweep it under the rug or throw up our hands and walk away, I want you to know the Bible, in the Bible, God equips us with a roadmap, a specific, a shockingly specific and simple roadmap to conflict resolution that the more I studied it this week, the more I realized it really does apply to almost every situation of conflict you find yourself in. Even in these modern times, this simple roadmap, I think, could be a real game changer if you could wrap your head around it. And I don't usually preach sermons like this. The self-help kind of sermon is not really my bag. I'm a little bit of a cynic, and I usually scoff at that kind of thing. But I actually believe the principles we're going to talk about today could be a game changer for you in a, in a fundamental day-to-day practical way, okay? So the roadmap I'm talking about, it's found in the book of Acts. It's a New Testament book. Right after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's Acts. Chapter 15, and I want to set the table for you and let you understand what's going on in this chapter and, and, and the chapters leading up to it. 
So Acts are the events that took place immediately following the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so that happened in 30 AD, and in 48 or so AD, the church was facing serious conflict. This was a real threat to the mission of the church just 18 years after the church really was born, okay? So the issue was that the Gentiles, who were the non-Jews, the Bible calls non-Jews Gentiles, it was everybody else, most of us, were not welcome in the church as Gentiles. The church for 18 years, the first 18 years of the church's life was just a Jewish sect. It was like the weird Sunday school room at, at synagogue where they believe a little different over there. You know, it's kind of the weirdos at the synagogue. That's what Christianity was for 18 years. All the first Christians were Jews. But Philip met an Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, and Simon Peter met the centurion, the Roman soldier Cornelius, in Acts chapter 10, and Paul and Barnabas were two Christian evangelists meeting Gentiles all over the world who loved Jesus, and they were coming to Jesus, and they didn't really have any interest in changing their whole lives to accommodate Jewish Mosaic law, 600 and something rules that suddenly they had to follow just because they love Jesus, all right? So that's the issue at hand. And because it presented such a clear and present threat to the church, the the leaders of the church called everyone together in Jerusalem in 48 AD for something called the Jerusalem Council, right? So the first thing they did when they came together was to clearly name the issue. No ambiguity, no chasing rabbits, no whataboutisms, just the one issue. This is how they did it. Then some believers, this is Acts 15, verse six, uh, five and six. Then some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, this is a, a group of Christians within the church. You all know some of the first Christians were Pharisees, right? Everybody thinks Jesus hated Pharisees. He loved them so much. He told them the truth about themselves. Many of them became Christians. So some of them, the party of the Pharisees, stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met to consider this question. Just this question. And if you lead a household or if you lead a business or, or if you're raising kids or fostering a marriage, like you may underestimate the gift you could give your household or your children or your spouse or your business the gift of simply and succinctly naming the issue at hand, all right? So what I mean by that is, have you ever been a part of a conflict where the leaders or the parties involved didn't name the issue? What happens? Inevitably, the conversation tail spins and nosedives out of control. And it's all about, well, remember when you did this and I hate you and all this stuff. And, and you don't solve the problem because no one has committed themselves to naming the parameters of the conversation. Well, they came together to wrestle with this one issue. Should Gentiles who love Jesus become, be forced to become Jews by law in order to be saved? So the Pharisees were like, it's really cute that you Gentiles want to be part of us now, but... We'd love to welcome you to our community, but we're going to need you to change everything about yourselves (laughs) first. Change what you eat, change how you get married, you know, change the the holidays you celebrate. 
you know, and we're going to need a little skin sample, but only from the men. <laughs> Don't worry, guys. Uh, it's only the most delicate part of your bodies. And uh, <laughs> there's only a slight chance that you'll die an awful, painful death due to infection. But don't worry. After that, you can be one of us. And to no one's surprise, this was a deterrent to Gentile conversions. <laughs> Fewer Gentile men suddenly wanted to follow Jesus. Imagine that. And that's the issue. They named the issue clearly, so then they were able to move on through the process. Whatever conflict you're up against today, naming the issue and only the issue is so important. And it sets you up for future success in managing that conflict. Now, the, the next step that the, that the leaders in Jerusalem tackled was listening to insight. Listening to insights means you call upon people in your life that you know have wrestled with the issue that you've named. Not just any old people, like, you know, not your buddy from college who, if you're having marriage problems, he had marriage problems. Maybe I should talk to him. And, you know, what he ended up doing was, like, leaving his wife and kids and marrying a 19-year-old and moving downtown, and you're like, insight. No, that's not what I mean, okay? When you're a believer, you call upon believers who have wrestled with the same issue you're now wrestling with, and you give special weight and credence to believers who are not ideologues. In other words, they understand how people come to their own conclusions on two sides of, of an issue. So someone who has had their mind changed and who has repented of something they used to believe and changed course, that's, I think that's especially authoritative and interesting at this stage in conflict resolution. And we see an example of this in Acts 15 where they called upon Simon Peter first. Simon Peter was in agreement with the Pharisees his whole life about this issue until very recently when he began to change his mind. So Peter spoke first in verses 7 through 11. Peter said, brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, and he purified their hearts by faith. In other words, not by the law or the rules, but by their faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? He's talking about the law, Mosaic law in the Old Testament. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. So it's hard to us, for us to imagine how revolutionary that would have been to hear from Simon Peter, who for 18 years had been saying otherwise. But his mind had been changed, and the church listened. And then they listened to Paul and Barnabas, who shared a similar testimony. And by listening to these insights on the issue they had named, they were liberated. They were free to move into the most important step of Christian conflict resolution, which is also the most often overlooked step, which is to take the issue you've named and the insights you've heard straight to the word of God, straight to the Bible. And a lot of us stop. We're okay with naming issues. We're okay with listening to our friends' insights. And then we stop there. And we take the insights at face value and we think, well, that makes a lot of sense. It worked for them. Maybe it'll work for me. And it seems innocuous enough. 
But enough of that, and you listen to enough people, and in some cases, the wrong people. As innocuous as their advice sounded, the next thing you know, you know, you're, you're burning sage in your living room to ward off evil energy, and, and you're, like, you're sending good thoughts instead of prayers, and you're, you know, you're praying to the universe all of a sudden. Like, these kinds of ideas can take root in us and grow in us, and unless they are taken to the Word of God and filtered through Scripture, it's all subjective. And it's all feelings-based. And a lot of us have been, have been steeped in a culture that values sentiment over Scripture. And we think that's what freedom looks like. When in fact, uh, the opposite is true. In fact, that is where we are manipulated and that is where we are, we are laid bare when, when our feelings are the priority instead of Scripture. Now, um, I want to... I before I talk more about this, I want to give you the example of, 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 uh, from Acts 15, how they listened to Scripture or surrendered to Scripture. When they finished, so when Peter and, and Barnabas and Paul had finished giving their testimony, James, who was the leader of the Jerusalem church, half-brother of Jesus, who didn't believe in Jesus until after the resurrection, James was now a big deal. He spoke up. He said, brothers, listen to me. Simon Peter has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. What's he doing? He's taking the insights they've heard and he's filtering them through scripture. He's looking in scripture for verification of what he's heard. He doesn't just take the insights at face value, even though they come from Simon Peter and Paul and Barnabas, pretty credible sources. He still takes their words to scripture to verify. And he quotes from the Old Testament prophet Amos where God says through Amos, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. It's ruins I'll rebuild and I'll restore it that the rest of mankind, not just the Jewish people, the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. So centuries before they met in Jerusalem, God had already made his intentions for the Gentiles clear. He'd already said he wanted them. He already revealed his heart for them. And even by the time Amos said these things, God says they were known from long ago before that. It goes all the way back to Genesis when uh, to Abraham, God promised to make Abraham the father of not just a nation, but the father of many nations, not just the Jewish state, but the father of the Gentile states as well. It was always God's clear and decisive heart and will to bring the Gentiles close to him. And that is why James and the other church leaders were willing to do a 180 on this vital issue to them, to say, hey, we've been wrong. We need to change course. We need to re-examine this. He didn't do any of that based on the testimonies alone. Only the word of God could change their minds. And I cannot express how important this is because absent the word of God's verification of the testimonies of Peter and Paul and Barnabas, they would not have had reason to change course. And absent the word of God's verification of your opinions and your friends' opinions and feelings and emotions and whatever's in the news and whatever the new fad is or the new trend is or the new belief 
is that you're supposed to have or the new priority is that you're supposed to set, absent the Bible's verification of that, you should not change the way you think and act and are. Only with the word of God's confirmation of these things should we change course, should we repent. And I know, I know how it sounds to have a preacher up here telling you that. It sounds to the skeptic controlling, contrived, manipulative. It sounds like an ideological straitjacket where you're only allowed to believe what the Bible says and you don't even know why you should trust that book. I know, I know how it sounds. It sounds to you like, like, a, like a box. But what I want you to consider is maybe that that I'm telling you now, maybe that's actually what freedom looks like. Maybe to, to filter all of your random daily thoughts and feelings and emotions and opinions through something objective, unchanging, timeless, and true is actually liberating, while on the other hand, doing it the other way is actually imprisoning to your soul and spirit because when you resolve conflict without Scripture, it's all up to you. You know what I mean? You have to have the right priorities. You have to believe the right things. You have to feel the right emotions. And in this world, we've seen it. In this world, the right priorities, the right feelings, the right emotions, the right beliefs, they're always changing. The goalposts are always moving. Have you felt exhausted by trying to solve your conflicts that way? By trying to fix your problems that way? By being a good person with the right ideas and the right opinions according to the world that way? That's what prison feels like. And I'm telling you from experience, someone who's done that for years and then someone who finally came to a place in my life where I trusted scripture enough to filter and funnel all my personal beliefs, opinions, priorities, et cetera, through scripture, I'm telling you that's where the freedom is. Because it's not up to me anymore to have the right opinions. My opinions on issues don't really matter at all. What matters is that when I have an opinion that conflicts with scripture, scripture wins. And that's hard to get used to, but once you do, it's freedom. Because it's not your opinions that's going against the ways of the world. It's not your, your personal feelings that are in conflict with your friend's feelings. It's your allegiance to scripture. And, and sometimes, as with James and John and, and the other disciples, like your understanding of scripture will evolve. I'm not saying be stuck in cement. I'm saying over time, you might be opened up to new understanding of scripture, but scripture itself, the truth of scripture does not change. And that is liberating. In, in a world like ours, that is especially liberating when you learn to trust the sufficiency of scripture. And in Acts 15, we see that once the church leader has clearly named the issue and listened to the insights of those on the front lines of that issue, 
and then filtered what they heard through the word of God and found in scripture verification for those witnesses, they were then ready to offer their clear instruction and resolution. Only then could they say, as James said, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols. So that's idolatry. From sexual immorality, your body matters. How you express yourself sexually matters in how you honor God. And then from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. And that's another subject. We can take up another, it's another sermon, right? But these are four rules as opposed to 600 and something. Don't worry about getting circumcised, Gentile men. Suddenly everybody's coming to church. Don't worry about cutting out the bacon and the shellfish. Eat what you want. Just We want the Gentiles here because apparently God wanted the Gentiles here all along and we missed it. We were wrong. And a leader who says I was wrong and I'm sorry and I see the truth now is such a gift to those she leads or he leads. Such a gift. Because it's easier to dig your heels in and be an ideologue about things. But James refused to do that. He just offered some basic boundaries And that was it. And his instruction for the church was clear and concise, leaving no room for confusion or misinterpretation. And this is how the church grew. Resolving conflict well. Naming the issue, listening to insights, surrendering to scripture, and offering clear instruction. But I want you to see how the whole issue, the whole thing revolves around that third step. Surrendering to Scripture. And some of y'all, I know, are not quite there yet. And this teaching that I'm about to give, that I'm giving, is it might not actually resonate with you until later. When you grow to a place where it's Scripture, 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 Scripture over sentiment, Scripture over social fads, Scripture over changing norms and trends, when you understand and trust the timeless word of God, that's when your conflicts cease to be a hindrance and begin to be opportunities for growth. That's where things really begin to change. Now, it could not have been easy for James and Peter and Paul to admit that they'd been wrong and to surrender themselves to Scripture, to the word of God. But no one ever said this would be easy. And I don't want to give you a bait and switch where where supposedly Christianity makes your life easier. It doesn't. Jesus said you're going to have trouble. This world will revile you. When you surrender to Scripture, I promise you, gosh, they're going to call you names and they're going to say you're a bigot or a whatever phobe you are today or they're they're going to try and disparage you and You'll lose friends, and that's just part of it. But to quote the Apostle Paul, who stood in front of that Jerusalem council, to quote him, who faced more ridicule than most of us ever will, if I were trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. And at the end of the day, there's only one opinion about you that counts. You're not here to please people. People pleasing is. is antithetical to to, to Christ and to following Jesus. 
There's only one opinion that matters about you, and it's not your own, and it's not your mama's, and it's not your husband's, it's no one else's, not your boss's, it's not your, your kids or your parents. The only opinion that matters is the one that you'll see and hear at the throne of judgment in eternity where we all stand before the throne and account for the things that we have done. And we'll all have to acknowledge the things we've done wrong, things we've done right, and why. And we'll all stand before Jesus who told us that every word of scripture is true. Jesus who quoted scripture at every conflict he encountered with the enemy, with demons, with anybody, he always went to scripture. He told us we could rely on it and one day we'll stand before him having relied on it or not. And not to sound a little too Baptist, Southern Baptist tent revival guy, if, if, if the Bible it's good enough for Jesus. It's good enough for you. And it's good enough for me. And I know the common trope is the Bible just doesn't have much to say about the issues we're facing today. Garbage. <laughs> Absolute garbage. The Bible speaks to every conflict you'll ever face. Maybe it doesn't say, you know, thou shalt not clone a sheep. Like, okay, but the Bible speaks in some way to every conflict, every issue you'll ever face throughout your life, and you can trust it. What conflict are you facing right now that you're just, you know you're dropping the ball? At home or at work, maybe here at the church. You're either sweeping everything under the rug, or you're blowing up, throwing up your hands and walking away, storming off. How will you take what we've talked about today and apply it to those conflicts so that you can grow in faith through them, so that you can resolve those conflicts in a way that honors Christ, in a way that models to the people that you care about the, the, the way of Christ? I'm thankful that the Bible gives us this roadmap. And I encourage you, whatever you're facing today, to name that issue clearly and concisely, to Listen to the trusted insights of believers who've been there. Most importantly, to funnel what you hear through Scripture, and then to offer yourself and others clear instruction that's based on nothing less than the timeless Word of God. Would you pray with me? Lord, we would rather take things in our own hands. We would rather handle it. We would rather be self-sufficient. <laughs> we would rather not rely on you. But life is too messy for that and conflicts are too many. And it is exhausting to us to try and figure out what's the right thing to believe today, what's the right feeling to have, what's the right priority to set. Help us instead, Lord, to see how clear and, and how clearly your word speaks to our conflicts, the ones between our own ears and the ones between us and other people. Lord, help us to trust you and your word more every day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.